This is the Inner Voice Audio Experience, and I'm your host, Travis McKenzie. Endurance athletes spend a lot of time in their own heads, and their own self-talk can either drive them towards their goals or crush them in an instant. We often focus on mastering the body, but these battles play out in the mind. I host inspiring athletes and innovators from across the endurance sports industry and explore the trials and tribulations that often play out well before race day and in their personal lives. You will recognize the names, but you won't have heard their stories told like this before. Last night, I, I went to sleep and I, I was scared that I wouldn't wake up. And so when I woke up today, I was really happy. Today's episode of the Inner Voice Audio Experience is a conversation that I had with Mark Sakowitz, the co-founder of SBT Gravel, an exciting new cycling event planned for this summer in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Mark is an avid endurance athlete and is the former CEO of Smartwall. As you'll hear during our call, one year ago to the day, Mark experienced the most impactful moment of his life. During an easy recovery ride close to his former home in LA, Mark suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. Given a small chance of recovery and an uncertain long-term prognosis, Mark's world was turned upside down. He acknowledges the mental impact that it had on him and is also grateful that his survival has helped him to recalibrate what's important. Mark is an inspiring figure to many, myself included, and gives some amazing insight into his career as a C-level executive, as well as the details of of what is certain to set SBT Gravel event apart even as a first-year event. I also want to thank the team from iCore Labs, who are the sponsor of today's Inner Voice audio experience. iCore is a clean, natural source of recovery-enhancing, full-spectrum hemp extract. They design their products with athletes in mind, and their goal is to protect your body from the stresses of training, improve recovery from intense efforts, and maintain a positive mental state. They believe that you can experience meaningful improvements in your well-being through small lifestyle changes, which is why they focus on the benefits of sleep, decreasing inflammation, and increasing mindfulness. They have a special offer for you to try Icor, which I'll share with you at the end of the show. I'm grateful for the opportunity to chat with Mark, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Mark Sakowitz, it's fantastic to be talking to you today. It's been a long time coming. Uh, you and I actually met not too long ago in Stillwater at the best slash only pizza place in town the day before the land oh. run 100. Um, Mark, it's great to be talking to you today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course, mate. Now, I w- before we get deep into the conversation, I want you to talk us through the pizza place in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and uh, also tell us about your day at Land Run 100, where we uh, spent a bit of time together, but I'd love to hear how that experience was for you. Sure. Um, well, you know, the interesting thing about the the Hideaway um, is the name of the restaurant in, in Stillwater. Um, the way I even found out about that restaurant was I was um, calling to verify my hotel maybe a week prior. And, um, we needed to add an extra night because we wanted to, um, stay on, uh, that evening and not just leave right after the race. And so I called the hotel and, um, while I had, uh, the front desk on the phone, 
I asked for restaurant recommendations and said we were doing a bike race and, you know, pasta, pizza, something along that line. And um, it turned out that the woman um, working at the hotel said immediately up, there's only one place to go. I've lived in Stillwater my whole life and you have to go to the hideaway restaurant. So that was uh, good enough for me. And it turned out, as you know, um, to be great. And I think half a land run was there (laughs) when we were there. So, so yeah. So, so yeah. Um, in regards to land run itself, um, you know, I, I thought that event, um, was amazing. Um, and we got really lucky with the weather, you know, um, I think land run, um, is known for um, uh, having a couple of years where the, the rain really impacted um, the the flow of the race and made for really muddy conditions and things like that. So everybody's really, really worried about that, I think, as they're coming in. And, and as you know, um, as I saw you out on course a couple of times, um, uh, the weather was a non-factor. It was a little cold um, at the start, but it turned out to be a great day. And um your land run was really, really fun. I loved the event, and um, uh, I, I'd be happy to do it again if Bobby will uh, will have me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, weather was fantastic. It actually was, you know, quite cold in the morning, as you mentioned. But um, I think I actually ended up being overdressed towards the end. I didn't really. Uh, it got quite warm towards the end, so I didn't. Uh, I probably had too many layers on. Um, but uh yeah we did see each other out there a couple of times and um to be honest the impetus for me to get back into a structured program was uh partly because when you came up to me after a couple of flat tires and rode away from me I was like this this sucks I want to get back and be fit so um thanks for dropping me like a a bad bean pie about 100k's into the race I appreciate that uh, yeah sure <laughs> yeah no problem happy to do it I yeah when I came upon you um that that time, that instance that you're referencing, I had, I had been off the bike for a little bit and working with a a, a tire issue, and um, you know, kind of the race was over, and I was just riding uh, to kind of get to the end. You know how I think every endurance athlete's been there when you're like, all right, the day probably didn't go as well as I, I wanted it to um, for whatever reason, and now I just want to get to the finish line. So. <laughs> So I I um I did not skip the the uh the Shea Lounge um or the what what the salsa um uh they had the couch out there that yeah. was fun yeah um and uh, all in all I thought uh, that that event was really really cool yeah. and um, yeah really enjoyed being there I agree and I actually I think I had you in sight still at the at the lounge and I said to myself if Mark stops I'm stopping and I saw you stop so I had to stop there was no excuse at right. that point I, mean, I guess from a number of athletes and kind of clicked through and did some research and, and found you and, and then did some more research on you and, and really learned a bit more about your story which intrigued me and I reached out to uh, give you a, a pat on the back for the work that you had done with SBT Gravel and we'll get into that but one thing that really um, I found out and stood out to me was um, some of the health issues that you had had and um, timely that today is actually the one year anniversary of uh, of your major health scare. Why don't you share a little bit about that uh, with the listener if you don't mind? No, sure. Um, yeah, today's a, a big day. You know, I think it's just a day, but um, I think everybody has milestones and, and, and a, a one-year milestone is, is pretty special, I think, um, especially when it comes to whether you're uh, 
still alive, <laughs> which which um, uh, I am, and I'm really happy to be. So, so yeah, um, you know, a year ago, uh, my family and I were living in Los Angeles, um, and I was actually getting ready uh, to race the Belgian Waffle Ride, um, uh, which is another great race in the gravel scene. Um, uh, and so I was out um, after my last weekend. I actually raced a, a race on Saturday, and then did a did a ride on that Sunday and and um you know my regular schedule is to take a day off on Monday and so and then do a, a easy ride on Tuesday which lots of people are on that kind of schedule and um so I uh I lived in in West LA in the Santa Monica area and and I was um doing my kind of everyday mundane um really easy um just recovery ride on Tuesday and, uh, the April 10th and, um, got to the Bologna Creek trail for the people that live in LA. Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, ride down that way and, and do rides on that trail and, and I'm no exception. And so I was just having a regular Tuesday thinking about, um, my equipment for a Belgian waffle ride and, and, um, really thinking about that. And, um, got about 40 minutes into that ride and um, uh, started feeling funny. And uh, so I don't remember all this real time, um, but uh, apparently from what, what bystanders said was I pulled over. Um, someone came upon me and I do remember um, they asked me if I'm okay. And I said, I wasn't sure. And then, um, the next thing I knew, um, I was in the back of an ambulance and, and, and resuscitated. But, um, what had happened in the interim was, um, I had sudden cardiac arrest. Um, and, um, uh, fortunately, uh, I was in Los Angeles. I was on a bike trail or path, not on the road. Um, and I pulled over so I didn't crash. I did fall off my bike. Um, but, uh, from a, you know, a stop position. And, um, uh, but, a, a couple of people, one guy, um, who I'll never forget a guy named Adam Tyler, uh, came upon me and, um, used my road ID, called my wife, called the paramedics. Um, and fortunately at the, at the place I was on the trail, I was very close to a, a fire station. So the paramedics, um, uh, could get to me quite quickly. And, um, and, and help, uh, uh, you know, get me resuscitated and, and, um, save my life. And so, um, all of that was in about a 20 minute window where I was off my bike to where Adam and his friend came upon me, um, called the paramedics, got me into a, uh, an ambulance and on my way to the emergency room. And so, um, you know, my wife actually was out of town, out of, out of the state. And, um, uh, she started getting on her way back to California. Um, we had my friends in the area met me at the hospital and, um, and then, yeah, so, um, I was fortunate to survive that. You know, the interesting thing about, um, those instances is that, um, the survival rate is low because, um, you need help, but mm -hmm. you can't, you can't resuscitate yourself on your own. Um, and so most people don't. And I was fortunate to have um, 
Adam helped and then the paramedics um, helped and, um, you know, get me into, into care. And, and so um, the diagnosis after they came in, you know, um, uh, they, or they had me come into the emergency room, they run a battery of tests and, um, you know, they initially thought that I had a heart attack, uh, which would be the logical thing um, to think, but it turned out um, as they, they started looking at, at me from that angle that I had no issues with, um, you know, in the heart world, they start talking about uh, plumbing issues or electrical issues. Right. And, and so um, they wanted to see if I had blockage or something of that nature. And I didn't, um, everything was clear. So um, then they started looking that I have a stroke. Um, I didn't have that. Um, and um, they continued for a couple of days, honestly, to try to figure out what it was. And, and at the end of the day, we did a cardiac MRI and found out that I had um, a disease called myocarditis, um, which um, in layman's terms was really just a significant inflammation of my heart um, that stopped it from functioning. And so um, uh, that, that was the deal. And um, uh, really the, the interesting thing about what, what happened there was that um, the prognosis was variable. Um, some people um, continue to erode and, and uh, don't make it. Uh, many people, their heart stays in the state that it was in um, and is damaged, and they have to take um, a new approach towards their life. Um, and then others, and I'm very fortunate that I fit into this um, bucket, um, uh, need to recover, rest, heal, and um, they go back to uh, effectively normal. Um, and so um, we didn't know what was going to happen for a long period of time, uh, long in my mind. It was, uh, we had to every three weeks go in and get retested um, for a, a, about a three-month period. Um, and then that time, um, uh, they really didn't want me doing a lot. You know, they wanted me to, to heal and recover and um you know, uh, one of the interesting uh, dilemmas that we had was being an endurance athlete like like yourself or or many that will listen to this. Um, you already have a low um, resting heart rate. You have low blood pressure. Um, you're generally perceived as fit. Um, <clears throat> but all the medicine that would take pressure off your heart, which is meant to lower your blood pressure or slow it down, um, just makes endurance athletes pass out right, if you take it. And so I actually really didn't take any medicine. Um, I had to wear an external defibrillator for uh, about a month. Um, they wouldn't let me drive. I couldn't leave the house. Um, and we didn't have, it was an open-ended prognosis, right? Because they didn't know which, at the time, which one of those three buckets I was going to fall into. Um, because it was really just look, stay inside, rest, and um, let's see if your heart responds, right? Um, and the inflammation starts to go down. And um, where I am uh, like to be in control and I don't like ambiguity in general, um, for me in that position was, uh, was easily the most challenging situation I've ever been in my life. One, one you're scared that you, you don't know if you're going to survive long-term. Um, uh, and secondly, you can't, you can't do anything. You just have to wait. Right. And, and I think for people like us, that's really, really 
challenging. Um, and so, um, uh, candidly, I, I, I was in a pretty bad spot for, uh, <clears throat> for a big part of that recovery because you, um, you try to stay positive and optimistic and, you know, I survived and, you know, in that situation I was in, you know, it's only a 6% survival rate as it was. And so that was a huge, you know, a huge hurdle, just, just making it into the ambulance. Right. Um, but that being said, once you, once that's in your rearview mirror, you're always thinking about what's next. And, um, and it was, it was quite challenging. I think the fortunate thing is that each time I went in, um, they saw progress. And by the middle of July, um, they gave me the all clear to, um, you know, start getting back to normal activity. And, um, I could ride my bike outside. I had to to really be careful um, for a long period of time on how um, we worked to get me back into, you know, into shape and, um, and regular activity. Um, But uh, I was, I was really lucky that um, for some reason my body responded and um, I I, I got back to full health. So it's a crazy uh, story and something that, you know, I, I would never have, have envisioned, but it, it just happened. And, and for context also, and this is important, the cause of my, um, the disease, uh, turned out to be, I, I contracted a virus somewhere that, um, impacted my heart. So it was, um, viral, uh, myocarditis. So, uh, just a fluke. And, and the doctors actually said that, uh, many people, including yourself, Travis could have had the exact same virus I had, um, in their life. It just didn't happen to attack their heart. It was just one, it's just one of those things. So, so yeah, the way my doctor, uh, and I talked about a lot, he said I was very unlucky and that I I was a thousand times, uh, more lucky if you can, if you understand, you know, um, you know, you caught a bad break, but then I got really, really lucky, um, to, uh, to have this, uh, be the end state. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing that I get from hearing you tell that story is how grateful and lucky I feel to have to have met you because, you know, really what we put ourselves through as an endurance athletes, there's many times where we do go riding or running or training out in the middle of nowhere with no one around. You know, in that instance, the fact that you were close to help, um, the fact that the first people or some of the first people on site were, were able to provide that help, I think is huge. You know, and the fact that you were able to recover from that, um, I think is huge as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm very, very grateful and lucky to be able to talk, feel lucky to be talking to you about this. For people who, you know, may be interested in, in knowing more about, you know, this and, and the potential that it happens to them, what was the feeling that you had when you stopped and you realized that something wasn't quite right in that moment? Yeah. You know, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I don't really remember, you know, I, I, I remember looking down at my, um, my computer and it said 41 minutes and then I don't remember anything else. You know, I, I really just remember I was back, um, in the back of an ambulance um, and I didn't ask a lot of questions. It was, it was very interesting. I, I had no concept of, of really what had happened. And so, but I knew I, I knew I had to pull over. I know that mm-hmm. much. And, um, which, which as a cyclist, uh, a riding solo for a recovery ride, you would never do. 
You know what I mean? You just like, oh, I'm going to go, I've got to ride 90 minutes today. I'm going to go out 45 and back 45. And then I had a, I had a, I'm a, I'm an advisor for a business in LA and I had a meeting with them um, at 12. I remember, you know, so, so I'm like, ah, it's just my regular day. I'm going to get the 90 minutes in and, um, and then go on to the rest of my day. And uh, amazingly enough, as crazy as this sounds, I, I remember, I do remember um, in the hospital, I'm in the emergency room and I, I told my friend to call my, the company. I like tell him I can't make it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the consummate professional. I'm probably, I'm probably not going to make it today. And um, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, one classic, of those things. Classic professional move. Right. Um, did you, now a lot of people I've talked to and myself included having had life-changing moments or life-changing uh, incidents happen to them. There's this recollection or there's this uh, realization that in the moment that this is a major event, this is something that is life-changing, um, whether or not you really understand in the moment what is happening. Did you have that feeling that you knew that this was pretty big? I did. Um, I absolutely did. Um, it, was, it, it was pretty interesting because I remember I'm a proponent of self-talk, um, as I think a lot of endurance athletes are or a lot of business people are, you know. Um, talking yourself through um, situations so you can be successful, right? Um, and whatever those triggers are that you have come up with in, in your life to, to help you push forward or get through something difficult or challenging or, you know, a big event or a speech or presentation or whatever it would be. And I always remember one self-talk moment that I've said to myself over the years is like, wow, I'm, I'm really so grateful that nothing all that bad has ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is like, you know, my family has, my, my immediate family has been healthy. I haven't had, um, uh, relatives have issues. I've had a, a really stable home life. Um, you know, just, you know, things like that. Um, my career went the way, um, I envisioned, um, you know, I have a great family, my wife, all those things. And one of the things that, um, really hit me um when i was in the hospital was i guess that's over <laughs> mm. uh, that that you know one of those things where i said wow i went through 49 years where things really went to plan um and uh luck fortune um hard work combination of all three you know probably played into that um but i was very very much aware that that was immediately over right i would never say that again to myself that um, that nothing bad has ever happened. I was, I was really, really aware, um, right away, you know, um, that, uh, this was life changing and, um, from a variety of angles, right. Um, let yeah, me ask you this, yeah. Does, has, has your feeling on that changed? And let me give you some context on that because I had similar feelings. I thought to myself, well, you know, life's never going to be the same. I can't say that I haven't really been through anything. But on reflection and over time, I've realized how fortunate I am that the bad thing happened to me and not someone that I loved or that I was close to. So I was able to control the recovery and the outcome and you know the positivity that I was able to bring from that experience. Is that something that you have 
come to realize yourself as well that, you know, if it's going to happen to anyone, it's best to happen to yourself because you have some control over how you approach the recovery. Absolutely. And, and I, and I would even extrapolate on it at a, even at a deeper level that I'm, I, um, I'm glad that it happened, um, to me, um, from a, a couple of key angles, uh, you know, one, um, I think you look, uh, back and you say, wow, I've had this, um, have a lot of things come, go my way. Um, now I've had this big hurdle and what are you going to do with it? And how can you go about your life and, um, maybe even make a better impact or contribution to the people that you connect with? Um, and from my perspective, there are a couple of things, um, you know, I completely changed or have completely changed how I go about my day, um, how I prioritize my time. Um, you know, as endurance athletes or as successful business people, you can move into a very self-centered um, lifestyle or framework, right? You jam everything in, um, you focus on yourself, you get your things done, and you figure out a way to slot other things in around that, if you know what I mean. Okay. And that's very, very efficient and very, very effective. But, um, for a lot of people, they might not, they may not like it. They may not like that you prioritize other things above them. Right. And so, um, tremendous awareness of that. Um, and I think, um, you know, subtle things like I, you know, I've made shifts to where I don't ride my bike that much on the weekend anymore. You know, now I'm fortunate, you know, I have time during the week, um, to get some of that stuff done. Um, but I'm reprioritizing my time, real time, so I can spend more time with people in their world, um, not just mine, yeah. which I think is huge. Because um, my wife isn't a cyclist. <laughs> she, she's not an endurance athlete. She's a, a much better person than me from every angle. And um, uh, she deserves more time, if you know what I mean, yeah. right? And so... I think that's one huge revelation that, um, candidly, I probably would have never have gotten to without this happening. Um, and then secondly, and I think the most important thing, um, uh, that I, that probably could have ever come to me is, is the mental health aspect of, of what's going on in the world. Um, because when, when you can't leave your house for three months and you can't drive and you can't, live your life at all. And you're basically told to recover. Um, your, your world gets really, really dark. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I personally, <clears throat> even through that whole thing, never thought of um, hurting myself or suicide or things of that nature. But I told my wife once I could, I said to her, I said, I immediately understand how someone can get to that point quickly and how their world can shrink and then how they could potentially not think there's um, anyone that will help them, yeah. right? Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> I think the mental health aspect of what's going on in the United States and the world, um, the mass epidemic, I believe that um, mental health issues um, are presenting to people every day, um, was opened up a world to me on how to... Um, Listen, care, empathize, be engaged, want to learn um, more about um, what those issues are for people, how to help them. And then 
and then be very, very open with talking about your own struggles with that um, and not be too proud. And, and, you know, if I extrapolate on that, you know, as you know, um, or as the audience will learn or read or hear about later in our talk is, you know, I've done C-level work for a long time and, and have led people um, for a long time. And, and as a leader, I always, um, you know, felt that it was um, good not to show a lot of weakness, right? Mm-hmm. Or, and certainly not share um, some of uh, the subtleties of, of you being um, vulnerable, for example. Um, and in retrospect, um, if I was leading one of those companies uh, today, I'd be a much better leader leading from a more vulnerable um, and engaging way and understanding way um, than the other platform. And, you know, I'm really proud of how I approach leadership over the 20 plus years of my career. But at the end of the day, um, you know, being able to talk to people um, in a more understanding way and certainly um, having no fear of sharing that um, you're scared or you have concerns or you need help. I think would make me more effective if you know what I mean. So um, I'm really glad I survived in, in retrospect. I mean, it was a rough, rough period of time and you could say, I wish it didn't happen, but um, because I have the luxury of, of surviving and being healthy, you certainly can say, wow, I'm glad it happened. If you know what I mean? Like it, it sounds kind of, you know, I don't want it to sound like I'm taking any of this for granted. You know, it's, um, uh, or it's an easy way to say, oh, yeah, I'm glad it happened to me. I mean, I, it really scared the hell out of me. And last night, um, I had a hard time going to sleep because I uh, went to bed and I, I was scared I wasn't going to wake up. I couldn't imagine um, what that feeling is like. And I, I really appreciate you sharing, um, you know, not only the story of, of what happened to you, but the approach you've taken and the ability to realize that you know vulnerability it does help other people and you know as you were talking i think back to a, a friend of mine jonathan cantwell who was a professional cyclist from australia who took his own life earlier this year and um you know john's family had a history of suicide and um you know he, he had a lot of friends and family who were there to support him and he had all of the tools that he needed but still um, you know, wasn't able to to work through his problems. So I think that the more that we can talk about it, and it doesn't have to be as extreme as that. Obviously, that's the the, the far end case that no one wants to think or talk about. But you know, there's a middle ground where people do really struggle and they do find things difficult. And when something goes wrong, that's as you said, worlds can get smaller, and um, you know, sometimes you lose hope. So I think people like yourself who are successful people like yourself who are leaders in the industry talking about that is only going to help other people as well. So I, you know, I I want to thank you for sharing that as well. No, you're welcome. And I totally agree with you. And, um, I think that, um, the real lesson here is that there's nothing to be afraid of from this perspective. People genuinely want to help people. Yeah. Right. And, um, uh, when we moved back to Colorado um, in August, so we this incident happened in Los Angeles in April, and we moved back to Colorado um, in August. And as I got back to town, uh, maybe a few months later, the local newspaper wanted to talk about um, 
this this story because you know where where we we live in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. It's a small small community, and um, you know I was the CEO of Smart Wolf for uh, you know a decade or so, and in a small town that was a you know a, a high um, profile position and and um, and so it was kind of a newsworthy thing that you know the incident and. The interesting thing is, is that the only reason I really wanted the story to be run was the mental health side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And the amazing thing was that when that article was printed on that Sunday newspaper, um, I got flooded with phone calls or texts almost exclusively, not, hey, that was a cool story. I'm glad you're back in town. Almost exclusively. Hey, Mark, how did you deal with the mental side of your recovery? I'm struggling with this. Did you know that I had this happen to me and I'm, I'm really struggling with this mentally? It was all mental health. Yeah. And it was all people who were dying for someone to share what was going on um, inside, yeah. which I thought was fascinating. Um, but it also scared me to death because... If a newspaper article um, about that triggered, you know, a lot of people to reach out, um, how many aren't? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, how, and that and that was that was um, that that was really impactful um, to me. And these were people that um, I had no idea were struggling. These were really strong people um, optically. Yeah. Right. From from a you know, you would never know what was going on. Um, and, um, it was amazing and it was really, um, uh, incredible to, to be able to share, um, you know, what was going on with me and, and hear a little bit about what was going on with them and, and hopefully help, you know, that that was, that was really powerful. Well, I think the fact that even one person was able to, you know, maybe, um, talk about it when they hadn't before i think is is positive and you know you're right there's there's everyone goes through it it's it, no one's immune to to having these thoughts and feelings and i think that giving people the space and the opportunity to talk about it and the tools to deal with it is really important so um you know kudos to you and then you know encourage you to continue to to openly share because i think it's uh, you know it's an important story and it's an important part um of your journey and and probably the journey of many others so um Moving on a little bit, I you have mentioned Smart Wool and your time there. Uh, obviously, you you held the the the, the big role there. Um, what was that experience like for you, stepping into a role um, like that with Smart Wool? And I think you were there for about a decade. Oh, it was incredible. The the best ten years of my professional career to date. Um, certainly in a structured environment where you know you you have a full time job, right? Um, it, it was incredible. I, I, I loved, um, every second of, of my time at, at that company and, um, learned an incredible amount about myself. And, um, really the, the smart will experience for me was where I evolved my skill set. Right. So when the way I got to smart will was I was working, I'd worked for Nike for a long time as a, as a sales in the sales area um, and was recognized a lot um, for being a really good salesperson and go to market type leader. Um, but I, um, 
you know, I think my wife and I were pregnant with our, our second daughter and we were sitting around the kitchen table one day at, um, in, in, uh, in Portland where we were living at the time. And we were saying, gosh, what, what's next? You know, we had lived in seven cities in, uh, 11 years uh, working for Nike, you know, just moving all over the place all the time, um, with different roles. And, um, we wanted to get some, to settle down a little bit and we love the West. We love the outdoors. You know, I'm an athlete and I always want to be outside and, and all those things. And, um, we, we said, well, what are some things that we would potentially want to do for our next step? And, you know, so I started thinking, well, is it, is it premium brands? Is it the outdoor industry? Is it, um, in the mountains, maybe, you know, things of that nature. And it just so happened that the next day I'm, I'm reading footwear news, um, at my office at Nike. And there's this, uh, roll open sales roll open at Smartwool. Um, which is a brand that we knew and, you know, respected. And I said to Amy, my wife, I said, well, I'm going to maybe give these guys a call. And um, that was in May of 2006. And I was working for Smartwool in June of 2006. So, I mean, it went really fast because I think when I talked to the leadership at Smartwool, um, it was it was very obvious that, I had some uh, skills that they could use. Um, and in speaking with them, it was very obvious that they were the right fit um, for what, you know, Amy and I were looking for at the time. And so, you know, I started in sales there and then a few, you know, we did some really great things um, to really accelerate um, smart wool in the outdoor space um, really around partnership, um, more than anything else. Um, the small already had great products, but, but they were, they were missing, um, true, genuine, authentic engagement, um, on a day in day out basis with customers, um, and the consumer. And, and, um, you know, that was one thing that, um, you know, I learned at Nike and, and was really, really able to apply there. And, and so we were able to really start, um, growing that company, and a few years later, I was offered the role of, of uh, president and CEO. And um, candidly, uh, you know, when I got that job, I was only 40 years old and I'd never done anything like that before. It was a stretch. Um, you know, Jeff Schwartz, um, who family owned business, uh, Timberland, um, uh, public company, but family business, um, that's who owned Smartwell at the time. And and he took a real uh, leap of faith um, in trusting me that I could evolve um, from being a kind of a go-to-market professional to being a leader. Uh, I remember when they offered me that job, I was in shock. I'm like, you got to be kidding. You know, there's there's no way that I'm qualified to do this job. <laughs> and um, but to their credit, they never said anything like that. They said, you're you're the guy and you're in charge. And let's see what we can do. And so, um, so I was formally in the CEO role there for seven and a half years. And, um, it was a real journey, a proactive journey of filling in gaps in my skill set, leveraging people around me that knew more than I did, um, trusting others. Um, and then really, really diving in 150%, um, day in, day out, to um, become a great leader. 
Um, and it was a really, really amazing project. It changed my life. Um, and, um, really has opened up any opportunity in my network. Any relationship I have is based on my time at SmartWool. And so, uh, it was incredible. And I, I still love the company. You know, there's still, uh, you know, the, the current CEO, um, was the CFO at SmartWool when I was there for a long time. She's amazing. Incredible that she was given the opportunity or earned the opportunity to, to be the CEO. And, um, I see those guys a lot here still in Steamboat and uh, care about the company as much as I ever have. So it was incredible. That's awesome. I'm very interested to hear about that first little part of the time um, that you stepped into the the role of being the president and CEO. And you talked about how you didn't feel ready and you probably had those, you know, your inner voice was telling you that you weren't ready and, you know, what are they thinking? What were those first three to six months like for you? What did you learn about yourself? And what was that self-talk that potentially helped you get through some of those tougher moments? Sure. Well, I think the first three months, um, first hundred days, let's say, um, was to learn, you know, and then, um, and then really get engaged with everybody there. And I think I, you know, it was the perfect role for a new leader at the C level because the company was, was still small. I had under a hundred employees at the time. And I honestly was able to get to know all a hundred, right. Um, at a, at a, at a pretty genuine, um, ground level, you know, I spent time, um, you know, I went to lunch with a different employee every week for three years there at SmartWool. Um, and um, we started doing a lot of things to get people engaged. We had town hall meetings. We had um, lots of engagement, lots of department get-togethers, lots of off-site things where we got to know one another. Um, and then also, you know, one of the things that we were working on before I took over, but we really galvanized was structure around strategy, structure around planning, structure around having people empowered to own their business and then giving them the accountability um, to run it. Um, and that's something that a combination of me having instincts for, me reading, me learning, me asking other leaders for help. What do they do? What do other successful businesses do? You know, there's there's certain peers in the industry. You know, a guy not like Blair Clark, who's now at Canyon, was at Smith for a long time. And he was someone I hit it off with. And every time we got together at a trade show, uh, at an industry function, he and I would always get together and talk about what was going on. And it was interesting because independently of one another, we were always making the same decisions. We were always partnering with this retailer. We were always trying to do this thing to encourage the employee base. We were always trying to work with this um, non-for-profit or advocacy group because it was better for our brands to work and support them. Um, But I was trying to find people in the industry that thought like I did, that I respected, that I could use a sounding board. Um, And that approach really, really worked. Um, and as my career started to build beyond the first, you know, year, um, I started to, to, to garner more, um, people that were willing to come into my network and, and be part of that conversation. So I really, I really kind of relied on a few 
fundamental principles. Um, you know, I really wanted to empower people. I wanted to be engaged and we need to communicate, right? Those three things really mattered um, to me. And I was really, really committed to them um, because I, I always talk to people about, um, you know, being credible, right? Um, if you, if you lose your credibility, um, you don't really have a whole lot. Um, so how do you engage with folks? So, you know, that they're credible, um, and you're fair because, um, you know, being CEO or being a leader is really hard and not everything is saying yes, right. You got to say no all the time. There's lots of conflict. There's lots of negotiations, but I'll tell you the one thing that I'm really proud of is that I'm in any conversation I'm in with anyone, um, they know that going in that I'm going to give them my full attention. I'm going to be prepared. And if we don't agree or if it doesn't go their way, it's not because that um, it wasn't fair, mm. right? They might like it, um, but it was fair. Yeah. And um, I think that's something that um, as a leader is really, really important. And I, I still operate with those principles every day, um, you know, throughout every week. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic insight. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, everyone I've talked to that knows you uh, has nothing but fabulous things to say. So I, I think you've done an amazing job of, um, you know, creating your own amazing credibility in the industry. And um, that actually is is how I kind of got to know a little bit more about what you're up to with Steamboat Gravel. And I'd love to talk more about that. I really think it's a, a case study or it could be a case study in marketing and creating a new event and engaging an, an audience around a new concept. Um, I found out about the event through some of the athletes that you had enrolled in sharing and, and supporting the event. And uh, I know a lot of other people who, who found out about the event in the same way. Can you tell me a little bit about your strategy without opening the kimono the whole way, but the strategy around launching Steamboat Gravel and, and, and maybe a little bit about what the event actually is. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for the compliments. And um, yeah, SBT Gravel, um, you know, maybe just to get some context on the event, um, SBT Gravel is a, a, a gravel weekend um, experience where we have um, three events or races, um, however you want to describe them. Um, on Sunday, August 18th, and it's the first year um, of, of the event. Um, but it really came to be, um, I've got two partners um, in, in the race, um, uh, Ken Benish and Amy Charity, both who have been great friends of mine for a long time. We're all steamboat residents. Um, they're, we're all cyclists, super avid. I mean, Ken was ninth at Land Run um, and overall. I mean, and... <laughs> And he's uh, he's an anomaly. Um, Amy was third in the women's race. So, I mean, the, you know, a bunch of really, really strong athletes, but um, actually better people. Um, and I think that combination um, is what has kind of drawn the three of us together. And, and you know, we were talking this past summer. Um, I was back in Steamboat. I was recovering. Um, and um, I took them out to, to happy hour and said, you know, we've been riding together for a long time. Um, you know, I'm recently, you know, sort of retired, at least retired from sea level work. Uh, we've always talked about, well, what about gravel and introducing 
these amazing roads and our amazing community to more people. Um, and so what if we put together an event that we would like to do something that, you know, if we had the perfect day, what would that be? Um, and, and then how do we get more people involved? And, um, uh, we're like, yeah, that sounds like a cool thing. And, and because we've always, we were saying like, you know, there's all these great races out there. Like land run is an amazing race that you and I just were at. Um, but it took us 11 hours to get there from yeah. Steamboat, you know, in the car, like it's a long drive and, you know, dirty Kansas, the same, um, in Emporia, fantastic event. Um, we're becoming friends with all of these people, Belgian waffle ride, you know, um, the crusher, um, in Beaver, Utah, like we love these, these events, we race them, but they're far. Right. And, and so, um, we thought there was also, um, an opportunity in the Rocky mountains to have an event where a lot of people could get to, um, more easily. Right. So, so just that concept right there was like, well, um, we love the roads and steamboat. We love our community. Um, we want to make maybe, um, racing more accessible, gravel racing, more accessible in the Rocky mountains. So let's take a look at what we can do. And so that was why that was the concept of how it came to be. Right. So that, um, you know, in regards to, you know, in, in the brand world, right, forget about talking about a cycling event, but we, you know, we think that, you know, these are brands. What would be a point of difference? You know, well, you know, we, we then started thinking about, well, if we wanted this to be perfect for us, like if Mark Sakowitz and Amy Charity and Ken Benish were going to do a race, what was perfect? And we would say, well, you know what, we don't like getting lost. Okay. We don't like the stress of getting lost. And some people love this, love that part of gravel racing. And I've done gravel races where, you know, you're, you're one turn away from being lost. Right. And that's fun, but we didn't want to do that for our race. We wanted everyone to know that, you know, you can download the file, which will ensure that you don't get lost. Um, but, Every turn is going to be marked. There's going to be people out there cheering you on. You're going to know that you're headed in the right direction all the time. Okay. So that was just one thing that we wanted. The next thing we said was like, all right, well, what if I get a flat tire or do I have to carry all the food and water I need for the day? Mm -hmm. And we don't like that either that much. You know, I mean, we'll do those races and they're really fun, but if we had a choice, we would love to have it really well supported and people out there. And if I needed a Coke in a tough spot, it was going to be there. And if I had a flat tire, I might have to fix it myself, but there might be someone that could come upon me and give me some help as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we started just kind of ratcheting through some of those things. And at the end of the day, what we came to be was we wanted to, have a, a, a race experience where there wasn't a lot of stress added to your day because, you know, we have three races and one of them is 141 miles. The other one's a hundred. And, you know, those, that's a long day. That, that's really, really hard. And so, um, and it's really stressful and you have to train for it. And lots of people are traveling and they're planning their summer maybe around our event. And so we don't want them to show up where they have to worry about all these other things. We want it to be 
easy for them to have a great time and then ride the, the race and look around and really enjoy it and want to come back year after year. Right. And so that, that's sort of how we started picking away at what do we want to offer? And so, you know, if you look at, um, if you look at the core of, if you're racing SPT gravel, you're going to have um, a lot of resource. We're investing heavily in the racer. We want to give people opportunity to, um, be using the products that our sponsors have either by contest or discount or giveaway or whatever that would be. We want people to recon the course. We're doing group rides for folks, um, that we're supporting. Um, and we just want people to have an amazing time. The other thing is we put the race, um, on a Sunday, you know, it's in steamboat. It's a resort community because we want people to travel with their families. We want people to travel with their friends and we want them to have an amazing weekend not just show up like your normal thing. Like, you know, I, I was living in Los Angeles and, and really doing a lot of road racing the last two years. And I loved that. I loved my team. I loved all the people racing, but I didn't love going to those races by myself. I didn't like driving to the event on a Friday night, getting in there at 11 PM, showing up Saturday morning, get my race number, do the race, drive home. Yeah. Like I just, I don't like that. Um, I think that's a barrier for people to doing those types of events because, you know, this is a lot of pressure, puts a lot of pressure on your family to train for endurance events. So how can you get your family involved? Um, how can you get your family to embrace it, to have fun and say, gosh, I can't wait to go to SPT gravel. I hope you do that race next year because we love going to Steamboat. Yeah. You know, uh, I and think so the way that you've approached that, Mark, about really mapping out the guest experience or the athlete experience um, is is fantastic, and you know you've you've talked to me about the process that you went through, but having you explain it in that way gets me even more excited about coming to the race. Um, so you know, what to maybe tell me a bit more about what the the athlete can expect on race day. You talked about the aid stations and the and the support out there, but it, maybe share a bit more about what could be coming the athlete's way on race day? What, what, we've, what we think the athlete's going to get on race, even race weekend, um, is if the athlete wants to engage with our sponsors and you want to talk to um, C-level leadership or the brand manager or the guy that knows everything about product, they'll be at a race ready to talk to you. Like, I think that's one thing that's really, really cool is that they're all going to be here right? They're, they're all racing. They're all riding. They're all excited about spending the weekend in Steamboat, right? So it, it's going to be a great showcase for their brand, but they're really excited to talk to people about the event or, or why they're a cyclist or why they're in Steamboat. And so we've got an expo, but we're, we've limited it to, you know, no more than 50 vendors because we want to make sure that every racer has the opportunity to go and speak to every brand. Right. As an example, uh -huh. um, we're linking the expo to the Steamboat Farmers Market so the racer and their family can experience what living in Steamboat would be on a regular Saturday. Right. And I think right there is really cool. I think, um, you know, we're going to have registration where it's immersed in the middle of the expo. Um, we're going to have a bunch of cool things or cool fun projects where the, the, the vendors at the expo are going to really be engaging with the racer. 
Um, we're going to talk about our, our parity initiative. We're going to recognize women um, and give a shout out to, you know, the, I think we'll have close to 500 women racing SBT gravel um, in year one, which is fantastic. Um, and we're going to recognize those women for, for um, being engaged in the community, which I think is really cool. And then, um, you know, once we get to race day itself, um, you know, you're going to show up, it's an early start, 6:30 start, but you know, we'll have coffee at the finish line for every, or at the start finish for every racer. We're going to um, put our own spin on, on the, the national anthem and getting everybody squared away. Um, and when they start racing, you know what, they're going to be really well supported. You know, Mavic will be on course. We'll have all our sponsors out there in force supporting us at the aid stations. And, um, you know, we'll have a bunch of people out there, um, supporting you, whether you're, you know, you're at the front of the race, racing it and duking it out with Payson and Ted King and Phil Guyman and, and all that crew, or if you're just trying to finish or it's your first gravel event ever. Right. I think that's the cool thing. No matter, no matter how you're participating at SBT gravel, um, it's right. And I think that's the cool thing about gravel in general. Um, whether it's a self-supported race or if it's one where you're getting a lot of support. Um, I think the answer is that it's right. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause who, who is it for me or you or anyone to define what gravel is or isn't. Yeah. Right. I think it's, it's, it's a great category. It's really fun. Um, you know, we're doing on course videos that we're, we're putting out on our YouTube channels right now, describing segments of the course. And, you know, the last couple were saying, Hey, I, you may be racing, but make sure you look around because there's a resident elk herd on this mountain as you, as you ride by it and you're going to see them yeah. and there's going to be cattle or here's a historic ranch. Here's a bunch of uh, wild horses. You might see antelope here. You know, you're, yeah. you're in one of the most iconic places there is in the United States. Look around, really enjoy it. And, um, and, uh, and I think that's another reason why we want to take the stress out of the day. Um, because make no mistake about it, you get to mile 90, if you're doing the black horse, this next 50 miles is going to be really hard. Mm-hmm. So wh- why worry about is there going to be a Coke for you at mile 95? There is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you can, you can um, you know, focus on getting yourself through the day. And, and when you get to the finish line, you know, you're going to get a, every finisher is getting a pizza, their own personal pizza, a beer. You can sit in the, in the Yampa river and, um, you can talk to the other, um, thousand plus finishers saying, wow, was that amazing? And, um, you know, we're with you there every step of the way. So I, I think that's for me personally, that's how, if I was racing, I think I would feel like I'm going to ride through the course. I'm going to see all this varied terrain. It's going to be challenging. It's at altitude, but there's going to be a bunch of friendly people out there trying to help. And um, I'm going to meet a lot of people on the course that day that, um, that is going to make it a really fun, fun experience overall. Yeah. That's awesome. I can't wait. It's um, yeah. You've, you personally have given me the impetus in a couple of occasions now to, to get back out and start training a bit more. One was the land run experience that we talked about. And two, the fact that you're putting on this 141 mile race in Colorado that, uh, honestly scares me a little bit that uh 
Yes, yeah, so thank you for getting me back out uh, in training again. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. And and for the audience, it shouldn't scare anybody. You know, we we um it, we we think that it's just it's um all races have their thing, you know, and you know they all scare me. Like I'm doing the Crusher and the Tusher this year, for example, and you know that race scares me. You got to go as hard as you can uphill twice two and a half times, I guess like mm-hmm. that scares me. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, dirty Kanza, you know, I talked to Christy about this and, you know, maybe I'll come do that race in the next year or two. I was, I was actually signed up as they know I was registered for the race last year. Um, and then I had to withdraw because of, um, you know, the heart incident. And, um, I'm, I'm actually personally scared to go and do that right now. Um, uh, but maybe someday I will. So that scares me, you know? So I think, so for everybody, everybody has fear, Mm -hmm. um, for our race, um, you know, there's the altitude and it's long and, and, and most of it's on gravel, you know? So that's a, that's a big thing, but, but I I think, um, you're going to have so much fun and enjoy it that, um, it might be hard, but it won't scare you. Yeah. Well, I think the fear comes from just wanting to, uh, respect, the elements and respect the distance and the altitude and things like that. And I think that that yeah. is really what us, you know, indu- people who are endurance athletes and, and have that mindset, there is a, a healthy level of fear in anything that we take on. Otherwise right. we're not really challenging ourselves. So um, it's definitely not a, a trepidation because I don't want to do it. It's more the opposite. It's, it's a fear and a trepidation because I'm so excited about the challenge. And I know that I will feel accomplishment when I cross that finish line, knowing that I'd, put in the work for the, the couple of months leading up and was able to get through the day um, unscathed. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, um, I, I agree. One thing you did mention there briefly was around parity and the, the SPT Gravel parity um, platform or the or the campaign um, that you have uh, created. And we talked to Laura King about that and we shared that piece uh, a couple of months ago. And then we had Amity Rockwell on the, on the audio experience uh, about a month ago and we talked with her about that. Can you share a little bit more about the parity program that you, you have in place at SBT Gravel? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, it's interesting that, that you bring up Laura and Amity because, um, you know, and we didn't get to your, I guess I didn't actually fully answer your prior question. So we can kind of hit these in, in, in the same context. You asked about, well, how would, how did we launch SBT gravel? Yeah. Um, in general. And, um, you know, the strategy that we had was, uh, and, and we'll continue to have is, is truly authentic. Um, you know, we, Amity is my friend, right. And Ted and Laura, um, you know, I know, I know Ted through Laura, not the other way around, um, which is interesting, right? Cause Ted's the world pro tour guy. Right. And, but I know Laura through our business backgrounds and actually Laura, um, did the Rafa prestige ride in steamboat in 2016. Um, and, uh, she did it with, um, Kate Paulison at tram and, um, a couple other women and, they want the women's division for that, that deal. Most of those roads are on, um, the SBT gravel black horse. Um, and so when, when we were thinking about how are we going to launch this or how are we going to get people to even know that it exists? Right. That was really the question. 
was, okay, we, we think we've got um, a race that people want to do, but how do we tell people? So, um, you know, for me personally, you know, I have a pretty significant digital and uh, social background um, from running CPG brands, right? Big ones, right? So we wanted to, to utilize that platform and then start talking about, well, what's our message or what's our voice? Well, the first three people that I spoke to, ironically enough, were Ted, Laura, and Amity. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, it's just kind of uh, all the stars aligned, you know, with this story um, and, and that you know these people as well. Um, but I called Ted and Laura um, to talk to them about SBT Gravel, asking them if they would participate and would they help us spread the word, plain and simple. You know, would, would you be interested in in um, racing, but would you be interested in, in kind of being an ambassador for us and, and just talking about it a little bit when we launch, right? And so this was in August, and we launched the race to the public at, um, at the end of October. And so I, I started talking to people that I really respected, um, that I thought would authentically want to be involved in a Rocky Mountain gravel event. Nothing else, right? Um, So I talked with Ted and Laura, and they they thought it was a cool idea. And Laura really understood the roads and said, wow, it's going to be amazing. Um, And that's actually, you know, Ted had raced um, the uh, U.S. Pro Challenge as a World Pro Tour um, racer um, in Steamboat. The stages went through there. So he had some familiarity with Steamboat as well. and so, um, you know, as we were talking, basically, you know, the way I described SBT gravel to you on this, you know, in this conversation is how I talked about it with all of them. Hmm. Right. So I, so I talked to Ted and Laura about it. I talked to Amity, um, Payson McElvin, Yuri Hoswald, Neil Shirley, um, and, uh, a variety of other athletes who honestly are friends. And, I think that's the cool thing. And that's the same thing that we did with sponsors. You know, I mentioned Blair Clark um, at Canyon, um, you know, Bernie Daring at Stages. Uh, you know, th- th- these people are, you know, Brian Vaughn um, at Goo. Th- these people are friends of mine for 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and they all love cycling they all um, are running their companies in an authentic, credible way. You know what I mean? So like, so this stuff that we've been talking about is how we reached out to these people and said, Hey, do you want to be involved? And the answer in all the cases was, yeah, you like, we think it sounds like something that we want to be involved with. Right. So, you know, the, the strategy um, the way I'm kind of describing, it seems like, well, okay, that's pretty simple. And, you know, it is, um, a benefit that, you know, for example, I know some of these people, right. And maybe some other races don't, um, if you're starting a new race, um, don't maybe have that benefit. Um, but anyway, that's kind of how we approached it. And, uh, so when we we made a decision to launch the race to the public, but not open registration that day, we wanted to tell people about it for a while. Mm-hmm. And so we started having um, athletes um, 
talk about the race. So whether it's Ted and Laura or Amity or Casey Armstrong, um, Karen Jarkow, Neil, Yuri, you know, people that are respected in the gravel or mountain bike or road community um, who are super cool and genuine, right? That, that was kind of the, the filter was like, Payson McElvin is this amazing guy, right? He's an incredible athlete. He just won land run. He just did um, uh, an incredible um, fastest known time uh, solo of White Rim in, in Grand Canyon, you know, but forget about how great of an athlete he is. Um, Amy, Ken and I were out riding in Los Angeles in January. Payson happened to be there. I sent him a text. I'm like, Hey, you want to ride tomorrow? He's like, sure. No problem. He, he comes to dinner with us. We go ride. He doesn't drop us. He has a great time with us. And we like those people. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, fortunately in the gravel space or, or the people that are least interested in gravel, that's who exists. Right. So, um, it's really cool to be engaged with, um, folks like that who want to push cycling, who want to have a career in that area. Um, and you know, we want to help that, you know, people have gotten on SBT gravel, some people, because we're paying prize money. You know, our view is that we want to pay prize money because we want people like Payson use him as an example. We want him to do this for a long time. And this is how he's chosen to make a living. And you know what? I think it's my responsibility as a race director in this case to help him. Mm -hmm. Right. If he wins the race. Right. Which, you know, who knows who's going to win the race, but, but it's an investment. You know, you, there's a concept that we always talk about, um, at my brands, uh, that, that I was working with is, are we harvesting or are we investing? Right. Yeah. And, um, we're using that exact same approach, um, with SBT gravel, you know, gravel is trending. So you could start a race and just want to ride the wave, right. Yeah. Or harvest that uh, totally acceptable strategy. Um, or do you want to push cycling forward and invest? And that's what we believe that we're, we're trying to do, um, in a really genuine and authentic way. And, um, you know, I think that's why, um, we've had, you know, such a good response. So, so well, in think, October, when, I think that yeah, investment, yeah, sorry. I think that investment strategy or what you talk about there investing really does lend itself to the parody conversation. I think it, you know, you're yeah. not just, and you and I had a, an offline conversation about this as well when this program was launched that, you know, it could potentially be seen as a campaign, but really at the end of the day, it is, genuinely an investment in wanting to get more women involved in cycling and have women feel like they can also be a part of events like this. Yeah, I, yeah, totally. I mean, when we launched the race, we had more women promoting the race than men. Um, and that wasn't necessarily on purpose, um, or not on purpose. It's just how it played out. And honestly, I think that if you define parody from my perspective, one, it's silly that we even have to talk about it, right, in yeah. general. Yeah. Be but because we do, um, I think that um, anything that someone running any business, forget about what it is. In this case, it's a, a cycling event. But how can you do your part to ensure that everybody has, 
an incredible opportunity to feel comfortable and confident enough that they would consider participating. And then if they do or they don't, that's up to them, right? And so what we found in many cases, because, you know, in cycling, there's more we- or more men than women than participate in general. Um, when talking to women, many of them um, have identified, and, and Christy Moen from Dirty Kansas just said that this um, in her podcast with Ted um, a couple weeks ago, um, their data showed the same thing, is that women want to have someone to participate with. They want to have someone to share this experience with. They want to have someone that can they can talk to about um, their concerns or questions in a comfortable, um, non-intimidating way, right? And so that's when we talked about parity. And so for context, at the end of February, we we opened up race registration. We sold out um, the, cur- the the spots that we had um, for the launch in December in six days. And uh, we had about 20% women or so that were registered in that first wave. And candidly, we talked as a, a group um, at SBT Gravel, Ken, Amy, and I, and we said, well, we don't think that's good enough. Um, we know there's more women that want to do the race. We know there's women that should do the race. We know there's women that, um, for whatever reason, didn't sign up. And so how do we um, talk to them, again, in a, in a really uh, authentic way, saying, you know what, if, if this is something you would consider, then please join us. And so we ended up asking the registered racers, pro or amateur, a combination of both, hey, why are you doing this race? And what are some of the things that you're concerned about? And what are your favorite things? What are your favorite foods? What are your fears? What do you want to do after? Um, And we put that survey out to um, the registered racers in um, December and January. We got this incredible response. All we were doing was offering it was a t-shirt if you responded. And we and we were initially only going to use a couple of people's responses, but we ended up using 50 women in the campaign because it was, I mean, technically a campaign, yeah, right? But um, we ended up wanting to share all those stories. And so if you go to sbtgravel.com, you can read um, about the 50 women. Um, you know, we pulled one of the questions that they answered and highlighted that on our website. It's there and it will be there um, um, uh, indefinitely. Um, and then we went out on social and shared all the stories and said, you know what, if you're inspired by this, um, we're going to open up 200 more spots for women. And if you want one, sign up. Yeah. Right. And they were filled really quickly. And, you know, like you said, now we've we've got close to 500 women registered between the three races, and you know, hopefully down the road, um, uh, in the next couple of years, we'll have, you know, you know, if if we have 2,500 racers in three years, hopefully 1,251 are women. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. You know, it that would be that'd be incredible. And you know, if it's not, it's not. But it certainly won't be because we haven't said that you're we want you here. We will do anything to ensure you're not intimidated. We will do anything to accommodate you to understand how to get involved in the sport. And we'd love to have you. 
That's fantastic. I, I think it's a, you're right. It's a conversation we shouldn't be having, but while we are having it, we may as well be on the right side of it and do the right thing um, and invest, as you said. So hats off to you for, for that. Um, and I'm sure that once people experience the event and have the time of their life there, that they'll want to bring their friends. And, and that was actually something that we experienced in my time at Lululemon running the Seawees event was we got them there once and then they were wanting to come back again and bring three of their friends or four of their friends or make a weekend out of it and, and bring you know, their, their girlfriends and, and boyfriends and husbands and, and things like that to experience it together. So I have a, have a feeling that that's what will happen after this year's Steamboat Gravel as well. I sure hope so. That would be great. Now, with that in mind, is there any plans to expand? You have talked about the fact that it was created because of your love of Steamboat and you and Amy and Ken really wanted to create this ultimate day out experience within your community. Have you thought about taking the concept and and expanding and growing elsewhere? Um, potentially, you know, we honestly, it's it's turning out to be it's turning out to be such a uh, huge undertaking to put on this event that who knows um, what we can get done um, in subsequent years, but. Um, yeah, we, we've got to think about it. We know that we're going to expand some things that we're doing in Steamboat specifically. Um, you know, next year we'll add some camps and we may uh, potentially add a different type of ride in the next year or two within Steamboat. Um, but taking it beyond that, we're not sure yet. TBD. We'll keep an eye out for it. Um, yeah. Mark, we've covered a lot of ground here today. I, I really, really appreciate the opportunity uh, to have this conversation with you. I've, I've really enjoyed our chats over the last couple of months and the time we've spent together in Stillwater, and I look forward to many more, and I look f really look forward to coming and experiencing Steamboat at the event in August. If any of our listeners are interested in getting in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, they can either reach out. Well, they can hit me in a, a bunch of ways. Um, certainly, they can they can go to SBT Gravel, um, and on our contact page, there's my email. Um, so that's easy, and we've got that where they can contact myself or the other two race directors. That's MarkSackwitz at gmail.com. Um, and then they can always reach out to me at MarkSackwitz on any of the social platforms that are there, and I'd be happy to talk to them. Amazing. Um, once again, mate, really appreciate the time and uh, look forward to connecting in a couple of months here in Steamboat. Yeah, this has been great, Travis. Thanks so much. And um, and I can't wait to get, you know, get to know you better and better uh, every time we talk. Absolutely, mate. All the best. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again to Mark. What a fabulous conversation. And once again, thanks to the team at iCore Labs. Not only do they sponsor the InnerVoice audio experience, they are also the official CBD partner of the SBT Gravel event. iCore nerds out on science to deliver the most bioavailable product you can get. Their mission is to provide the highest quality, most effective full spectrum hemp extract products available, allowing you to have the best day possible. Try a bottle of iCore and save 15% by using the code InnerVoice at iCoreLabs.com. 
As you heard, I've started to ramp up my training to get ready for the 141 miles at high altitude in Steamboat this summer, and i plays a big part in me being able to back up my training day after day. Give it a try, I'm sure you'll love it. Finally, if you love the show, please go and leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would mean a lot. I'm Travis McKenzie, and this is the Inner Voice Audio Experience.